So this is the Sunday after Earth Day. So some some of us sometimes will commemorate Earth Day not on the 22nd of April, but on the Sunday following it or close to it. And I certainly would love to speak a little bit about this home that we live with and this home that we share and the care of it. And uh, as many, many of you know, the prefix eco, E-C-O, like ecology, uh, means in Greek home. And so ecology is the study of our home. And uh, I just finished uh, two days, yesterday, two days of uh, the training that I teach, uh, I co-teach uh, on uh, Buddhist eco-chaplaincy, the spiritual care in relationship to our home that we live in, this home that we all share together. And, uh, you know, when people live together in a home, uh, roommates, family, um, there's a whole different relationship we have to uh, the mutuality of that, that home space and the mutual care of it and keeping it clean or taking, uh, uh, you know, creating an environment that's nice for everyone there, caring for the people under the same roof. So we share this uh, global home and that we call the earth. And and, uh, in the way that I like to see things in words, it's an ancient game that uh, Buddhist teachers, back even back in ancient India, loved to take Indian words and and uh, do kind of not exactly etymology, but to uh, tease apart things from the word. And so it turns out that the word earth and the word heart uh, both uh, overlap with the letters A-R-T, art. And, uh, and the art, and maybe the meeting place of our hearts and this earth is in the art of living. And this expression, the art of living, um, is a, uh, offers a kind of, I think, a rich series of connotations that life can be a form of art. And, uh, more than it is work, the work of life, more than it is a duty or a burden. But an art is something that uh, we offer our hearts to, our care, our creativity, our attention, our, uh, to detail. And, uh, and so this earth of ours, do we live on it uh, with the art of living? And... Um, the, um, so one of the most powerful, uh, I don't know, most powerful, one of the, I think, powerful images uh, coming out of Buddhism of uh, our relationship to the earth is um, the uh, image here on the Buddha on all altar has this, uh, what's called the earth-touching mudra. I guess I'm um, blocking it a little bit with my shoulder, but if I lean a little bit to the side, I think maybe you can see 
that um, the Buddha's uh, right hand is reaching down over his knee and uh, his fingers are just about to touch uh, the earth. Or maybe he's just touched the earth and he's pulling it away. And um, But uh, you can see the delicacy, the simplicity, the very relaxed way in which that hand is draped over the knee. And it's a relaxed kind of going forward to touch. It's not grabbing the earth or attacking the earth. It's a light touch. Just the tips of the finger is going to come down and touch the earth. And um, uh, I can't help but to think of the image on the Sistine's Chapel where Michelangelo has painted uh, the touch of God on the, f- on the fingers of Adam. And Adam is just coming alive, uh, being touched by God. And, um, and there also we have this light touch, this gentle, it's not um, a, a gentle touch. And to live uh, touching the earth, to live lightly on the earth, a light touch in how we live our lives. The Buddha, there's a wonderful verse in, where the Buddha uh, says that um, like something like, like a bee uh, collects pollen from the flower without harming the flower. So um, a wise person walks through life uh, without harming anyone or anything. So certainly, you know, we get our food, our water, we get our things, to take care of us, what sustains us from the earth. But to do so in a way that it's a light touch that doesn't harm the very thing that is sustaining us, like a bee. Um, so here the Buddha is touching the earth lightly. And the story of this is uh, its part of the mythology of Buddhism. We don't find this story in the earliest layers of uh, the Buddhist records from the Buddha's life. But some maybe 500 years later after the Buddha, um, you find this story that uh, is really colorful. It's, I think of it as, uh, you know, this is a, a time in ancient the world where there was no technicolor movies. There was no color photos. and um, It was a very much an oral culture. And, uh, and so it was orality that would paint these dramatic pictures of, of, um, that were evocative in, in, uh, in this imagery. Uh, maybe not just for entertainment's sake, but also to evoke the emotions, to o- evoke a sense of awe at this life we live. And so the story goes that the Buddha was sitting on the ground and the statue we have behind us, we, uh, it's not sitting really on a pedestal, it's, it's uh, meant to be you know, sitting you know, on the ground, on the earth. Um, the night uh, in the evening uh, before his enlightenment, he was sitting there uh, in his quest for awakening, for freedom, for freedom from suffering, to really get to the bottom of what suffering is and to find a way not to suffer. What a, that's considered to be one of the great noble quests um, to uh, bring suffering to an end, not as a fantasy or a fable, but as a real possibility for human beings. And um, that was his dedication. And uh, 
So in this fable, this uh, myth that uh, was, the um, uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of forces that want to prevent the Buddha from becoming free of suffering, of discovering this peace and stepping away from the attachments, addictions, hostilities of the heart that might, you know, that have such a strong compulsive pull and demand on our attention. And these are represented by Mara, Mara and Mara's army, armies. And Mara came with his, and the descriptions are, you know, like Lord of the Rings and, you know, the huge evil forces that are marching across the plains and with all kinds of ogres and orcs and all kinds of awful creatures and um, huge elephants that must have been like the um, Bradley tanks of the ancient world, fighting elephants and came marching to um, to chase the Buddha away, to destroy the Buddha, to prevent him from becoming enlightened. And the drama of the stories is, you know, worthy of, you know, something like Lord of the Rings and and um, and uh, they throw every possible um, uh, weapon they have at the Buddha, arrows and javelins and sharp-edged discs, and you know, in these. And um, and the Buddha, as you see in the statue, um, is unmoved and relaxed and breathes at ease and doesn't react or doesn't uh, doesn't uh, flinch in any kind of way. And um, in fact, all the arrows and spears, as they get flying through the air at the Buddha, tens of thousands of them, the air is buzzing and howling with all these armies and dragons and things that are just kind of attacking the Buddha. And uh, all the weapons turn into flowers and the flowers land on the ground. So after a while, uh, Mara realizes that Violence is not going to dissuade the Buddha from his calm, his peaceful endeavor, his calm discovery of where freedom from suffering is. And um, so Mara comes with um, his last weapon, and that is to sow doubt in the mind of the Buddha, to challenge him, that, or to uh, claim to him you have no right to become awakened. You have no right to attain this highest capacity of human peace that a human being can experience. And, um, and, uh, and this idea, you have no right. So I, I interpret all this as being all kind of psychological forces inside the Buddha himself that are casting all the forces they can to prevent him from letting go of this, how he usually has been, the attachments don't want to, don't want to be let go of, and um, and his self worth has huge doubts whether it's appropriate for him to become awakened. Isn't awakening and freedom freedom from suffering kind of a, isn't it kind of an abandoning of people? Isn't it a kind of a, you know, attaining something profound and beautiful for oneself and is that okay to do when everyone else is suffering? And there's all kinds of doubts that can come up. And um, and so, and one of the things that that uh, Mara says, in sowing that, trying to sow doubt in the Buddha's mind, is that um, 
you have not benefited people enough to deserve being awakened. You have not practiced enough generosity. You haven't given enough to people and the world. And, and without you know, having lived for the benefit of others, uh, it's not appropriate for you to become awake. And, um, and the Buddha says, well, then I'll bring a witness uh, who can bear witness to all that I've done uh, to support this world, all the generosity that I've done back over the many lifetimes I've lived. And he said, I'll call upon the earth as my witness. And here we have this provocative idea that the earth that's been around for so, so long is the witness that keeps the record of what we have done. Uh, I grew up uh, on the coast of Italy and uh, it was remarkable to see, uh, it, was kind of, it was kind of beautiful at first, seeing the islands that, uh, around where we were lived. Um, and then to realize that they were completely denuded of soil, mostly bare rock, because they had been over-farmed with grapes and olives um, 2,000 years ago or in the Roman times. And uh, all the soil had washed away in the over-farming of them, and nothing was left. Uh, they'd cut the trees and they'd farmed. So the record is still there. And uh, the records of uh, the record of what humanity is doing to this planet, that the earth remembers, it's here. What do we carry with us? But the earth remembers also the good. And, um, and so the Buddha asks uh, the earth to bear witness to all the generosity and all the benefit he'd brought people over his lifetimes, and um, to assert his right, the okayness to let go of his clinging, his attachment, to become free and experience the happiness of liberation. And, um, and so that's when he reaches down, he's going to touch the earth uh, to uh, ask the earth for um, be that witness. And I love this, that um, he doesn't assert his right for awakening. He doesn't uh, rely on his own feeling that, yes, it's okay for me to become free. That he's uh, calling on something that's larger than himself or uh, beyond himself that um, for the support, for the validation, for the encouragement, yes, it's okay. And if we see ourselves as part of the natural world, part of the earth, we are the earth um, because we're part of the earth. We are made up of 100% recycled material uh, that has uh, been part of the earth for eons, for a long time. And in a sense, we arise out of the earth and uh, as part of the earth and we are the earth that can see itself. We're the earth that can hear itself. We're the earth that can taste itself and, and walk on itself. And so here the Buddha is touching the earth, this light touch of uh, the earth. And then the earth, uh, in reply, to bear witness to his right to be awakened and all the generosity and good he'd done the earth has an earthquake. 
And uh, then the legions of Mara's armies uh, realize that um, the, the Buddha has indeed um, the right to be awakened. And they get frightened. And um, they run away in all directions. They say, the text says, no two of them going the same direction or the same path. And uh, they run, run away. And, and then in the vacuum that's created, um, all these uh, deities come to create light and celebration. And, but the Buddha just sits there. And as he's sitting there, uh, he's, sitting, he's sitting under the Bodhi leaf tree, the Bodhi tree. And as he's sitting there, a few leaves from the Bodhi tree gently fall from the tree and land on his robe, land on his lap. And um, there's no explanation about what this is about. Um, but uh, it's a beautiful imagery again. Again, the Buddha is in nature, under the, uh, uh, sitting at the base of a tree. And uh, now this gentle movement of a leaf of this Bodhi tree, that leaf that looks coincidentally a little bit heart-like, uh, comes down and lands on the on the Buddha and and sits there and and I take it as being a little bit again this this intimacy with nature the natural world that uh, and then only then does the Buddha see deeply into the nature of this world and um, and he sees something about uh, the interconnected nature of this world and uh, paticca samapada is the poly, the Pali word for this and um, and in doing so, he becomes liberated and free. And um, and then there's a in this technicolor mythology, it's the whole universe gets lit up in light. Even the dark crevices of the universe light up with the Buddha's enlightenment. And then he gets up eventually, and he walks. He walks a long distance across northern India to find people that he can begin teaching to, find people he think are ready for his teachings now that he's awakened. And so his awakening is not the end of the story, but in a sense it's the beginning of the story. And in this ancient text that talks about this, it's actually made up in three large chapters. And the, uh, and the third chapter begins with after his awakening. It's a new chapter in the Buddha's life when he goes out to be of service and to serve and to help the world. And so um, uh, we have this uh, wonderful myth that uh, is evoking our connection to the earth as part of practice, as part of the natural world. And, um, and he, the idea of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, sitting on the earth, touching the earth, being caressed by the leaf that uh, falls down. It's also said in this mythical story that uh, with his awakening, um, the flowers uh, bloom and the other trees around. And those flowers begin kind of falling, petals start falling as well. And so the art of living, an art of caring, living in such a way that we live beautifully. It's one of the associations I have with the idea of art. Certainly not all art is meant to be this way. But uh, when I think of the art of living, I think of living beautifully, living with a beauty. 
living with an ease, living with a creative source from within that is not burdened by distress, not caught in hostility and aversion, not caught up in uh, self-condemnation and and, uh, feelings of guilt, not caught up in um, uh, giving up, uh, despairingly giving up, but rather one that feels the natural aliveness and lived life that wants to meet life, wants to be connected, that when it's intimate and connected to uh, what we love the most, then we'll treat it like a bee taking pollen from a flower without harming the flower. And to sit and sit or meditate and become free and then have access to us in intimacy or a closeness or of uh, a love for what we see and what we what we go do. In the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, this mythology, the whole universe gets transformed with his enlightenment. As I said, the f- f- flowers and also fruit uh, bloom out of season. Um, music starts being played in the skies. Light spreads throughout the universe. Um, um, beautiful things happen. And for me, this is a metaphor for how we see the world when we become free. When we settle and become intimate and present and clear and we've cleared away the distractions and preoccupations and fears and worries that we live under, um, the eyes with which we see the world changes and we it isn't that the world has changed and it's not kind of to be Pollyannish about what goes on in the suffering in the world at all, but the eyes see the world tenderly. The eyes see the world and see beauty and, or see love or see sweetness. Um, in this mythology, it says all the oceans of the world turn into sweet water when the Buddha when the Buddha, be, fresh water, when the Buddha becomes enlightened. And um, so there's, it's as if everything changes and there's a, there's a beauty in this world. So to live beautifully, and uh, one of the ways that that's lost often in English translation of the Buddha's teachings is the Buddha talked about beautiful karma, beautiful actions in the world. And the word he used is kalyana. And, um, and uh, sometimes in translation as good karma, and then there's bad karma. But uh, in uh, many teachings, the Buddha talks about not, doesn't use the word good, but uses the word beautiful. And so that our actions, how we live our life, um, has a beauty to it and a gentleness or a tenderness to it. And part of that is to uh, live beautifully in relationship this home that we have, the earth, and to care for it, to love for it, to love it in the art of living. And um, and uh, the art of caring for this world. And so the, you know, to, but to do, make that be kind of the, to be really a, not a subsidiary thing that we do, a sideshow for us, but 
to really live in a way that we care for this world, the people of our lives, the, the environment we live in, the planet we live in, uh, so that it becomes, it's not a duty and it's not a burden. It's not like we make ourselves now so much more busy, but rather it becomes an innate expression of our love, our creativity, the artfulness from which we are living our lives. So that uh, this is why we practice. We practice every day, we practice all the time. Not because it's a duty, not because it's uh, an escape per se, but rather because it allows the best of who we are, the most beautiful qualities of who we are, and the most richest ways in which we can see the world and hear the world, um, becomes, um, um, you know, becomes natural for us, becomes where we live from. We live from freedom, we live from ease, from peace. We don't live from hurry, we don't live from greed and wanting and filling our plate and attacking. And We live with a light touch. And, um, and the earth will bear witness. The earth remembers and the earth hears. And one friend of mine says, um, it's because the word earth begins with E-A-R, with hear, that uh, we know that the earth is listening. Uh, the earth is listening to us, watching us, and certainly caring for us. And, um, and it kind of keeps a record. And perhaps when you're ready for your enlightenment, you can call upon the earth to bear witness to your right to becoming free. I think the earth will support us if we care for this earth that we live on. May we care for it together as if it's, it is our home because it is our home on this Earth Day, Earth Week of 2021. So, thank you.